Sergeant Nathan Wirick served in Afghanistan and appeared to be in a pretty safe situation one April morning. As he was serving there in Afghanistan, there had been fire just from one insurgent, not from a host of insurgents, just one. One insurgent had fired on uh, the camp, and uh, Wirick's fellow platoon members, they, they fired back, and the insurgent hid, so they fired again. And when they fired uh, the second time, um, the, the insurgent fired back. So they fired a third round. And when they did, some of that fell uh, eerily close to Wirick's tent. As a matter of fact, they realized that they had fired on one another at that point, And so they rushed to aid some soldiers who had been wounded by the shrapnel of the firing and someone said, Wirick, uh, Sergeant Wirick is still in his tent. 34 years old, when they went into the tent, uh, Wirick had taken a bullet to the chest. And at the age of 34, just a few hours later, he died. He left a wife and four children. His wife said later, uh, she spoke of what a great husband he was, how he loved his children, how he spent tremendous amounts of time with them, and how to her he was her best friend. While we hear that story and think of Sergeant Wirick and wonder why the other soldiers were not more precise in their uh, firing that day, I fear the reality is that there are two kinds of people in the room here this morning, those who have mistakenly taken out someone who never should have been with friendly fire. You have mistaken the enemy. You have uh, assumed that the enemy could be in this room or the enemy could be the church down the road or the enemy could be the pastor over there. And so your words have become uh, fire um, as Jesus would describe them, death in uh, the Sermon on the Mount, and you have, rather than identifying the enemy and taking out the enemy, you have effectively taken out one of your own. And then there are those of you who sit here this morning who've been the, the object of friendly fire. You've received that from someone who should have known better and definitely should have done better, but they didn't know better and they didn't do better and, or they did know better perhaps and didn't do better, which makes it worse. And you sit here wounded as you are in church this morning. Maybe this could be the first time you've been in church in a while. You sit here wounded this morning because of that. It pays to know who the enemy is. Two weeks ago, when we looked at the second return of Christ, I preached about the Jesus you never knew. 
I would say anecdotally, I have never had more response to a sermon I've ever preached in my life than that one. Just repeated, repeated response to that sermon. This morning, I hope that based on knowing Jesus for who he is, we will discover. And in the, the chapter previous, in 19, we had four names given of Jesus and that upon his return. And interestingly enough, there are four names given here to describe Satan. And so this morning, based on this millennium, this thousand-year reign, the phrase occurs at least five times in this passage, we discover three abiding principles for today. Let me address the millennium, and then let's jump into the text. The millennium is a thousand-year reign of Christ that I believe will occur as soon as the battle of Armageddon is decided, that Jesus Christ will reign on the earth for a thousand years. Now, there are three views of the millennium. I have never touched on them in this series. I have, do not have time to go into detail today, but this morning before the service, I posted a blog that gives those three views. So you can go to that and look at the view. I'm a premillennialist, meaning I believe all of the significant events occur before the millennium, the thousand-year reign. Most people are in that category, but there are also postmillennialists. Uh, who believe that the events occur after uh, the, the uh, th- that the millennium comes after all of this, and then there are the amillennialists who don't believe in a millennium at all. They believe it is all spiritual, and so there are significant theologians in each of these fields. And what I put on the the blog sh- shows that, so you could go check that out. But this thousand-year reign, this physical reign of Christ on the earth that I believe will happen after the battle of Armageddon, after Jesus Christ has returned the second time, the battle of Armageddon, this thousand-year reign, in this we discover that we need to know who Satan is and what his future holds. An angel emerges who has a key to the bottomless pit. What is this bottomless pit? It is a place where in Luke 8.31, demons beg Jesus not to send them, often referred to as the abyss. Earlier in the book of Revelations, uh, a swarm of locusts leave, uh, of demons, uh, as locusts leave the bottomless pit. It is also the home of the beast. He ascends from the bottomless pit. This angel emerges with the key to the bottomless pit, and he is going to open up the door to the bottomless pit with a long chain representing that Satan is going to be limited for this thousand years confined. But then we have these four words that emerge. Satan is referred to as a dragon, as a dragon. It references his fierceness, his cruelty, the terrifying danger of Satan. And I would say to you this morning that Satan is dangerous. He is a dragon. He does not wish well for you at all. He is 
aim is to destroy your marriage. His aim is to destroy your influence. His aim is to destroy your uh, ability to function as a husband or as a wife or as a single person. His aim is to do that, not because you're that important or I'm that important, but because God is and Satan comes after God repeatedly. He is a dragon. Secondly, he is described as the ancient serpent. Goes all the way back to the Garden of Eden. And in the Garden of Eden, Satan comes writhing through the garden as a serpent. When we see Satan as an ancient serpent, we think of this one word, deception. What did he say to Eve? Did God really say? Are you sure God said And then he took God's very words, which he knew very well, and just twisted them a little bit. The ultimate rationalizer Satan is. He is the ancient serpent. Third, he's described as the devil. The devil, that word means slanderer, accuser, liar, Father of lies, slanderer, accuser, liar, and father of lies. He is the devil. He has no capacity to live in the truth. He wants only to discredit you and to cause you to believe lies about yourself, lies about others. He is a slanderer. He wants to destroy you, to to come against you with words. He is the devil. And finally, he is Satan. And that word means adversary or opponent. He is against us. In a world that tends to discount uh, the spiritual at times or the reality of the existence of a being like Satan, all you have to do is watch the news. All you have to do is check into your world, perhaps, where you work and see the confusion that at times is stirred up to know that the slanderer, the accuser, the, the uh, father of lies is still actively working today. Cast out of heaven, he works against God. What is his future? He is bound for a thousand years and then released for a little while. The passage says he must be released for a little while. If we look at this thousand year reign of Christ on the earth, all right, remember we've just come through the great tribulation. Many, many, many people have died. The battle of Armageddon has taken place and the nations that followed the Antichrist have gone down in that in that infamous battle of Armageddon and Jesus Christ is now reigning on the earth. For this thousand years, Satan is bound, but he must be released. Well, look at why in just a moment. After he is released, 
then there is another battle with him that's depicted in verses uh, 7 through 10 of Revelation 20. God ultimately wins. Satan is ultimately cast into the lake of fire where he will be for eternity. What the millennium teaches us and what the teaching, the writings in Revelation 20 teach us is number one, we need to know who Satan is and what his future holds. He has a limited time. He will ultimately be cast into the lake of fire. Ultimately, he will be judged by God. But he is working diligently now to undermine him. In light of that, with that as the backdrop, if you will, and quite a dark one, we need to know who we are and what our future holds. Notice what happens after Satan is chained and put into the abyss There is a vivid image that's completely different, one of thrones. And seated on the thrones are those who have authority to judge. And the question that would come before us is, who is that? Who is sitting on these thrones? And there are two or three big answers in the sense that different theologians, some will say the 24 elders referred to earlier in the book of Revelation. Others refer to the, the 12 apostles and say, it is those who sit on the thrones. I happen to think it's all the saints. Uh, why? Let me give you a few verses. Revelation 5.10 says, And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. Talking of saints. Daniel 7.27 says, And the kingdom and the dominion and the greatness of the kingdoms under the whole heaven shall be given to the people of the saints of the Most High. Jesus said in Matthew 19, 28, Truly I say to you, in the new world, when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on 12 thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 6, 2, Do you not know that the saints will judge the world? There is this pattern in Scripture that you and I, as believers, will one day sit on thrones alongside Christ and judge. And my guess is as I say that, there are all kinds of things that come to our minds. Number one, well, who am I to do that? Who am I to do that? Daniel said it would be. Jesus said it would be. Paul said it would be. John here has a vision of thrones. Who am I to sit on a throne and judge in this millennium? There are specific people mentioned here. Let's deal with them. Those who were beheaded for the testimony of Jesus and for the word of God and those who had not worshipped the beast or its image and had not received its mark on their foreheads or their hands. These are tribulation saints in particular. Verse 5 says, The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended, and this is the first resurrection. And some people are confused by this, the first resurrection and the second 
Is it a spatial thing? Is this resurrection occur, as I believe, when Jesus Christ returns in the rapture, the dead in Christ, 1 Thessalonians 4, says will rise first? Well, that seems to be the first resurrection. Well, technically, if you want to look at the first resurrection, it occurred when Jesus Christ resurrected himself. Because when he did, there were a certain group of saints in and around Jerusalem who were resurrected. It isn't a distinction of time. It is a distinction of type. You say, Jerry, what do you mean? All the unbelievers are resurrected after the thousand-year reign. The first resurrection is a resurrection. It would take in Jesus and those saints. It would take in the rapture and the, those saints who are dead and caught up with Christ at the rapture. Then it will take in the tribulation saints, those who did, died during the tribulation but did not cave, did not give in. They'll be resurrected. So the first resurrection really involves three different times, but only one type. Those of believers, the second resurrection to the great white throne judgment described later in this chapter, that resurrection is of the unbelieving dead. So all believers at this point are resurrected to a life and a mission for at least a thousand years of reigning with Christ. And yet, my guess is that most of us don't feel like royalty this morning. That's my guess. NPR did a show, and in that show, uh, it's one of their programs called This American Life, they featured an episode titled The Devil Inside Me. The show asked various people if they ever felt like they were under the spell of an inner voice that held them in bondage to unwanted thoughts. According to the show's host, quote, it was like people had been waiting all their lives for somebody to ask them this question. Here are some of the responses from the interviews. A man says, I certainly know the voice you're talking about. Another man says, the voice is irresistible always. I'm in the thrall of that voice. A woman says, totally out of control. It's got this life of its own, and I can't tame it anymore. A woman says, I actually have a name for the voice. Sorry, Stan. I call it Stan. Stan is the guy who tells me to have the extra glass of wine. Stan is the guy who tells me to smoke. A man says, quote, I remember somehow realizing just how finely calibrated the voice was to every nuance, every part of my feelings, including the feeling that I didn't want to smoke cigarettes. And it's like, you might as well have another cigarette because this is it. A woman who just got engaged hears her voice say, quote, you better try your hardest to make sure he doesn't take the ring away because he's going to find out the truth about you. So you better distract him with a really thin body. This voice inside. Counselors will call it sometimes self-talk. And my guess is that if we were to do the same survey that there are people sitting in the room this morning, as a matter of fact, it's a very good educated guess because I've talked with several of you and you would say, I hear the same voice. There's this voice that tells me I'm a loser and it says it again and again, and again. There's this voice that tells me I can't, and you fill in the blank, whatever it may be, and I hear that voice again, and again, 
and again. It's self-talk. It's sometimes from your growing up. It's sometimes from a divorce. It's sometimes from a failure you'd rather keep private. It's, its source can be many and multiple, but the message seems so clear to you. I would say to you, and I say this to folks with whom I talk, I get a chance of 30 minutes a week with you. This voice gets every waking hour you have. And unless you learn to listen to the voice of God instead of that voice, you will duke it out every other hour you aren't here unless you learn to get into God's word. What we discover here is that believe it or not, if you have trusted Christ as your Savior, in your future is some kind of throne with some kind of reigning opportunity with Christ. You are groomed for royalty. You are a child of the King, bought with the blood of Christ, paid for by none other than Jesus Christ himself. You matter to God. You are his. Completely and totally his. Your future is certain. Your your current circumstances, be whatever they may, your future is certain. But Jerry, if you were to look at my life, uh, here's the reality. Here's the reality. It isn't necessary that I look at your life. Even when God looks at your life, he sees the blood of his son, Jesus Christ, applied to your life. He doesn't see your sins. Scripture says he cast them into the depths of the sea, never to be remembered against you anymore. And I love what my dad says. I've shared this with you before. And the only person who can retrieve them is a deep sea diving hypocrite. And they'll try. They remember some things you've done. They remember your past. They remember your failures. They remember some of those things. They do. They can look clearly and see those things you've done. Scripture says he cast, he cast your sins uh, as far away from you as, and him as the east is from the west. Why is that so significant? It was written in a time when most likely they had no idea there was a North Pole and a South Pole and you could actually arrive at that destination. And if the writer had said that he had cast our sins uh, as far as the North is from the South, we now would read back into that and go, okay, I could get there. And the way some of us work, we'd start out and we'd end up there. But no, the writer said before the knowledge of that, that, that they're cast as far as the east is from the west. There is no arrival point, is there? You can't get there. God won't go there. So why, in your mind, do you camp out there? 
Why? God is grooming you to reign with Christ. You're royalty because you're heirs and joint heirs with Christ. I love what my friend Ken Smith says. You're not a turkey on the 32nd row of a chicken convention. You're a child of the king. One thing the millennium teaches us is to believe, is to know who we are in Christ and what our future holds, is to know who Satan is and what his future holds. And finally, to know who Israel is and what her future holds. God has a special future for his people Israel. Paul calls it a mystery. Romans eleven twenty five through 28, he says, lest you be wise in your own sight, I want you to understand this mystery, brothers. A partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come. And in this way, all Israel will be saved as it is written, The deliverer will come from Zion. He will banish ungodliness from Jacob. And this will be my covenant with them when I take away their sins. As regards the gospel, they are enemies of God for your sake. But as regards election, they are beloved for the sake of their forefathers. I do not understand this in any full sense. I do not understand it in any full sense at all. Paul called it a mystery. But I would say to you, W.A. Criswell used to say, one of the things that ought to build your faith more than anything is the fact that Israel is still a nation today. And that is true. The fact that this tiny little strip of land on the Mediterranean Sea that God has sustained since ancient history through all of these years ought to cause you to look at God and go, what in the world are you up to? I think that along with creation are two compelling reasons, two compelling reasons that we ought to have faith in God. Here's a little nation that never should have survived all that that little nation has survived. Let's look then at some characteristics of the millennium. Number one, Jesus will possess absolute control. Jesus will be in charge Remember, in the battle of Armageddon, the Antichrist is defeated, the false prophet is defeated, now Satan. So this unholy trinity, Satan, is locked into the abyss. Jesus will be in absolute control. Philippians 2, 10, and 11 say what? Every knee will bow. What will life look like? The standard of life, I think, envisioned in the Sermon on the Mount. Go read the Sermon on the Mount. I think we'll see it then. Number two, there will be harmony among the nations. There will be harmony among the nations. Worldwide peace will mark the millennium. It's clearly distinct from the rest of history. Isaiah 2 verse 4 says swords will be beaten into plowshares and, and, and spears into pruning hooks. Number three, there will be harmony within creation. Nature is waiting for this, as described in Romans 8, 22 and 23, which talks about all of creation groaning and longing for the day when it will be made right. 
As you look at creation, creation groans and longs for the day. If we could only hear the collective sigh of creation, if we could only hear the collective sigh of creation, which longs for the day when it will not be as it is right now. You see, you and I do not know that. Please go with me here. You and I have never experienced life without sin. Creation has And creation longs for it and groans for that day when everything will be made right again. I should have provided the pictures, but uh, uh, Channel 13 had it on this week because Beth texted me and saw it, and I don't know, McDowell News may. But the funniest thing happened at my house. We have this holly tree that's really not in our house, uh, on our lot. It's on the lot next door. And that big, gigantic green tree is not mine either. Just FYI, it went up this week. Everybody, every year says, Jerry, like your new Christmas tree, it isn't mine, all right? I I don't own that thing. I don't put it up. It shines brightly into my house every year at Christmas, but it's not mine. It's it's a lot that belongs to somebody who lives in Winston-Salem. But at any rate, there's this holly tree uh, that is there on that property. And this summer, I saw a vine start growing up that holly tree, and it looked just like a squash, and I thought it was. And so I didn't bother it. And the town who mows that lot, they didn't bother it. And the vine just continued to grow and grow and grow up that holly tree. It just grew as soon as it started. Uh, it started late summer, which surprised me. I figured, did think, if it was a squash, it would have started sooner. But it just grew, grew up the holly tree. It grew all over that holly tree. It had blooms. There was never a squash on it. So I thought, I don't know what's happened. We go out on Halloween night. Uh, we, we have a few hundred trick-or-treaters every year. We go out. We're getting ready for these few hundred trick-or-treaters who are coming. Wendy looks over to the left, and she says, Honey, what in the world is in that tree? I said, What are you talking about? So I step over. I look over, and sure enough, in that holly tree, 15 feet off the ground, is a pumpkin about this big around. (laughs) That was not a squash. It was a pumpkin. And that pumpkin vine grew all summer up that holly tree. So hanging there, the pumpkin vine is dead because the freeze has killed it. It's been dead for, for three weeks now. I have no idea how that pumpkin continues to hang there because it is literally this big. But it's hanging right there in that holly tree, 15 or so feet off the ground. You know what? God never intended that pumpkin to be there. I mean, just in case you're wondering, it was never the plan when God created for pumpkins to grow. That could kill somebody, all right? If you're under that tree, when that pumpkin comes down, it ain't going to be pretty for you. And so God never intended that. Romans 8 says all of creation groans and longs for the day when it will be made right again. When it will be right. And... There will be harmony within creation. Let me read Isaiah 11, 8 and 9. The nurse and child shall play over the whole of the cobra. And the weaned child shall put his hand on the adder's den. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain, for the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. What Isaiah is describing is yet to be, and for a premillennialist as I am, I believe he's describing the millennium right there. 
hostility among creatures will cease. Man will not need to fear any creature. Even as we considered now, today, the sad state of the Philippines with the storm. The destructive forces of nature, such as storms, earthquakes, and volcanoes, will be stilled. Israel will have a special place in this. As described by Isaiah, you can go to Ezekiel 38, first few verses of Ezekiel 38, you'll discover another description of this. What is their future place? I believe Jesus Christ will reign from Jerusalem proper. I do believe that. I believe his throne will be established there on the throne of David. I don't go as far to believe that there's going to be a reinstitution of sacrifices uh, at all. I don't. Some people do. I think that's too much in light of the cross of Christ. How will Israel come to faith in Christ like you and I do? I do believe that. What what should this mean for us? Does this mean that Israel ought to, even now, get by with anything they want? No. Should they be held to the same standards of every other country? Absolutely. 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 Does it mean that we as a nation ought to befriend Israel? Yes. Am I preaching politics? No. No. There is a future that's special for Israel. Scholars have long debated what might be the most significant miracle that Jesus performed. If you ask any layperson, we're going to say, Lazarus. He raised Lazarus from the dead. We're going to say that. Maybe Peter's mother-in-law. I'm not sure Peter would agree with that, but Peter's mother-in-law. We may say things, but Jewish scholars go to one miracle a lot. And it's one that may surprise you. It is the calming of the sea. They go back again and again to the calming of the sea. Why is it? This right here. The disciples are asleep, or or, or not asleep. They're in the boat and they're afraid, and Jesus is asleep. And the fact that he could be asleep in this boat on these choppy waters is one thing, but he is. And they go down to him to wake him. And when they do, Jesus steps out to the front of the boat and he looks at that storm and he simply speaks. And he says, peace be still, and the waters are calmed immediately. And the waves are calmed and the storm quiets. For a Jew, the greatest miracle is the ability to have power over creation. The ability to stop a storm. The millennium 
the miracle of the millennium for Jewish believers is that. The ability to physically calm a storm. Now I'll say that Satan must, the scripture says Satan must be released. Why? Here is the surprising thing about the millennium. You can't miss. A thousand years, the earth which has been devastated by the tribulation has been repopulated for a thousand years. Satan is not on the earth. Do not miss this. He is not on the earth. But after a thousand years, Satan chained. There's rebellion again against God. With Satan chained? Yes. Why? Perhaps what the millennium shows us most profoundly is the profound corruption of your heart and mine. Why? You've got a thousand years of Jesus Christ reigning. You've got a thousand years of this glorious reign of Christ and still there are people who see it and go, I want to have nothing to do with it. The heart is deceitful and wicked above all things and who can know it, Jeremiah says. God's ability to calm the storm, that great miracle is matched only by his ability to change a human heart. Jeremiah said, or Ezekiel, I think, said, I'll take a heart of flesh out, maybe it was Jeremiah, and replace it, a heart of stone, and replace it with a heart of flesh. Satan's release proves the point today, and then the devil made me do it is no acceptable excuse. Every single person, Jew and Gentile, is dependent upon the transforming work of Jesus Christ on the cross for salvation. Apart from him, there is no salvation. Apart from him, you cannot overcome the sin that is besetting you right now. We need Christ. Your marriage needs Jesus Your singleness needs Christ. Can he speak into that? Absolutely. Can he change your heart? You better believe it. Let's pray.